Welcome back, everyone, to the Dice Pirates podcast. This is episode 13. We are going to be talking about two of Stefan Feld's games, Castles of Burgundy and Castles of Tuscany. I, of course, am your captain, newly reinstated Ian, joined here by my completely ordinary seaman with nothing extraordinary about him whatsoever, Matt. How you doing, Matt? Uh, greatly relieved to have the, the burden of command uh, taken away from me. Uh, I got to tell you, man, you, you didn't let me know about the volume of paperwork associated with being captain. Uh, captain's logs, uh, port entry documents. I mean, just the fact is I haven't even filled out your wages in weeks. It's, it was terrible. I have, in fact, noticed that. I've never seen a man so scared of a book in my entire life. Yeah, yeah, man. Uh, I'm happy to just be an ordinary seaman. Uh, if you need me, I'm going to be sitting on that uh, bench over there. Well, fortunately, to pick up some of the slack, we have one of the OG Dice Pirates here with us, Max. How's it going, Max? Hey, guys. It's going pretty good. I'm glad to finally be on. Uh, for those who don't know, I'm also Aaron's brother, uh, Aaron, who has been on the podcast numerous times before. And uh, I'm glad to be joining you guys today. Yeah, we're glad to have you here, man. Uh, Max has been playing games with us since the uh, beginning of the Dice Pirates, and uh, he's kind of our covert agent. He likes to keep a low profile, but if you enjoy the Instagram account, you've actually seen uh, Max's handiwork and read a lot of his words. So he's uh, he's been a he's a uh, been a big part of the production for since the beginning. So we're glad to have you here with us today. Very happy to have him here. And definitely helpful to have somebody who actually knows what he's talking about. Before we move on to our soapbox, we want to quickly announce the winner of our giveaway. Thank you so much to everybody who participated. It was wonderful to see your reviews and get to see your engagement with the podcast. We are incredibly humbled every time we see you guys interact with us. Something that we enjoy doing and knowing that other people gain enjoyment out of it as well is absolutely incredible. We want to announce that Ace is High 22 has won our giveaway. They say, I was pleasantly surprised by the quality of this podcast. The content was researched and worth my time. It's my new go-to board game podcast. That makes us feel so good. Thank you so much. You're the winner of this giveaway. Unfortunately, although we have tried, we cannot reach out through iTunes, but please go ahead and reach out to us on Instagram or email us at dicepirates at gmail.com. That's dicepirates at gmail.com. And we will go ahead and make sure that gets to you. Thank you once again. Yeah, thanks, Aces High 22. That was a uh, incredible review, and everyone who left reviews, uh, we thank you for participating. It means so much to hear from people who are listening to the show and to know that people are finding it valuable, that the stuff we're putting out there, our silly nonsense and our random observation about games, if it's giving you some entertainment or some joy in your life, that means a lot. So yes, Aces High 22, if you're out there and you're hearing this and you left that review on our Apple Podcasts, please uh, send an email to us or you can send us a direct message on Instagram at Dice Pirates and we will uh, make arrangements to uh, have a copy of Bluffineers sent to you. I also want to thank our sponsor, uh, Big G Creative, who have agreed to provide a copy of the game. They will uh, ship a game to you uh, right away once we kind of work out the arrangements. And uh, thanks again to everybody who participated. We're going to go ahead and move on to our soapbox now. Matt, is there anything that you really wanted to get off your chest? I do, man. I wanted to kind of dive into the uh, latest hot game that a lot of people are talking about on the BGG hotness list. It feels like every week there's kind of uh, a new game that's catching attention. And this week it is John Company 2nd Edition. This is a game uh, of colonialism and the East uh, India Company that comes to us from designer Cole Worley, who uh, famously brought us Root from uh, Leader Games. And this is uh, his second game uh, that is kind of trying to explore colonialism from a more nuanced lens. And he actually published uh, on uh, the Whirly Gig Games uh, blog a lengthy kind of article explaining his philosophy and thoughts on how he is trying to tell the story of the East Empire Company, its reach and uh, growth in a way that is uh, sensitive and nuanced to uh, the realities of this and the oftentimes dark and uh, unpleasant side of colonialism. And this is something that games have been grappling with more and more for um, over the last few years. Uh, colonialism, empire building are these uh, common themes in games. We've all seen games like this where it's a map of a country or a continent and your job is to expand, to build empires, to build economies and get your engine running. And in the past, there's not been significant uh, thought given to what these games are saying about the world and how they're glossing over 
the uh, impact that, that these empires and that these colonies had on uh, the places uh, depicted. So classic games like Puerto Rico, or even in a more abstract way, a game like Settler's Catan, painting this kind of overly rosy, sometimes too abstract picture of what uh, colonialism meant. And so there's been an increasing demand, really, from the gaming public to try to to ask publishers to, to, to explore this in a more nuanced way. And uh, John Company, second edition, is sort of the latest attempt by a publisher to try to do that. And I'm very intrigued by this. It To me, it points to a couple of things. Uh, one is, uh, I think it's the another sign of really the maturing of board games as an art form. Uh, what you're really seeing here, I think, is the, the public, uh, the people who play games, wanting the storytelling of board games to be nuanced in the same way that we expect a movie or a book to be. If you tell me that you are... Uh, making a movie or a book about the colonization of Africa, then we sort of expect that that's going to look at that from all sides in a reasonable way. And it's going to tell that story in an appropriate context for the period. And it's not going to gloss over the realities of what happened. So that's why when you look back at a game uh, like uh, the canceled game from 2019 from GMT Games, Scramble for Africa, which uh, was this game about colonization in the late 19th and early 20th century of Africa that was just, you know, horribly uh, uh, superficial in the way it portrayed what was happening. People really pushed back against that, and that game was ultimately canceled. And so it's interesting to see publishers now sort of adapting to these increased expectations that gamers have. And I think it's a really good thing. I mean, I feel like this is sort of a continuation of some of the discussion we've been having the last few episodes where we talked about racial representation in games and also the depiction of female characters in games and other things. Uh, board games are growing up and they're being treated uh, like, a more, like a real art form. And that comes with higher expectations. And it's interesting to see publishers grappling with that and the gaming public uh, debating it. It really is encouraging to see a developer who is being very intentional and thoughtful in the way he approaches this. And like you said, this is a discussion that we are going to come back to at some point because there is a lot to dive into here and a lot to unpack. But regardless of how you feel about this one way or the other, it is encouraging to see that he has been thinking about this very seriously in his approach to it. Whether or not you agree with the end result, it is nice to see that there has been thought put into this instead of just being another game that uses colonialism as just an excuse, which of course is something that, you know, is, is better to get away from. I do want to say that I think that uh, this, uh, that Cole Worley, who is behind John Company Second Edition, is one of the publishers who is uh, at least trying to explore games and use them in a way to explore history in a more nuanced way. And I think it's really interesting to see his work. Uh, in, in addition to John Company Second Edition, he did Pax Vermeer which was all about the uh, colonization in Afghanistan involving Britain, Russia, or the Afghan state, and, and trying to explore that in a more nuanced way that told the story of these tribes who were caught between the British Empire and Russia, and trying to tell that in a more interesting way. He's also been behind, he was also involved as an artist in a game that I had never heard of, but in doing a little bit of research for this episode, I stumbled across this game called this Guilty Land from the publisher Hollenspiel, which takes on an incredibly complex subject, which is uh, slavery in America, and tries to tell, uh, make a game out of that. And that's an incredibly complicated thing to do. And I don't know a lot about this game, but from what I gather, it uh, at least reading uh, this article here on Vice.com, it seems to be reasonably successful at portraying a really dark and terrible topic in a sensitive way that helps you learn. And so I think it is interesting to see uh, game publishers uh, telling more complex topics in nuanced ways. And also this kind of growing idea that games are a storytelling medium. And as such, they have to be uh, responsible for the way they tell their stories. Speaking of stories, I'm going to go ahead and push you off that soapbox real quick. And I want to go ahead and talk about a game that we've been playing a lot of lately that I think tells an amazing story. I'm going to talk about Twilight Struggle. Twilight Struggle is a game about the Cold War that came out in 2005. So this game is, it really is in many ways a throwback to the classic war games of yore with a lot of the Avalon Hill games, that sort of ideas. It has a very 
pared down map. It is not a beautiful map to look at. The components themselves are kind of are very basic. There are just little cardboard tokens. The color scheme is you know red and blue primarily, which thematically makes sense. One person plays as the USSR. One person plays as the US in the battle over the world. But I think what makes this game absolutely incredible, and the reason that it maintains its high position on Board Game Geek and the ratings for so long now, is just how incredibly well balanced and how well the theme ties into this game. In terms of theme, that's something that we like to talk about a lot because it definitely helps to elevate a game. And this one in particular is fantastic because as the game progresses, you proceed through the stages of the Cold War. Early on, you're going to have various you're going to have various events that happen. You might have the Marshall Plan. Eventually, you're going to have NATO come up. Later on, you might have things like Charles de Gaulle. Nasser will show up in the mid-war. You have these events that happen, and they don't come out until the appropriate time. So as you play the game, you kind of get the sense of reliving the major events of the Cold War and trying to shape them. There's a sense of inevitability. When you play multiple times, you know this is going to happen. You know what's coming out, and how do you work around that? So you actually get to tell this story of the Cold War, and you get to do sort of a little you know, historical fiction of your own and try to decide, okay, well, what happened if things had gone slightly differently, and maybe the U.S. hadn't quite made it into space and hadn't been able to catch up? And it's fantastic, but then that also ties in perfectly well to the balance of the game, because the USSR naturally has a huge lead moving into the beginning of the game. And the US, the longer you can drag it out, the more chances they have to win. In terms of just general balance and overall strategy, this is one of the more, I think, deep games that you and I have played together, but also one of the most engaging. Like I, I would play this many times in a row if I could. Oh man, I can't stop thinking about this game. I am obsessed with it. Just to kind of put it in a little more context for you, so Twilight Struggle for a long time was the number one game on the overall rankings on Board Gang list for I think five years is what I remember reading, uh, but a period of multiple years. And it was always struck me as an odd game to be up there. Uh, when you look at the top of the Board Gang Geek list, you see uh, you know fantasy epics. Uh, you see the kind of thematic, complex, uh, geeky stuff that, uh, you know, board game uh, geeks, as the website says, uh, would, would typically gravitate to. And then out of nowhere, there was this very quaint looking little game with a map of the world and some little cardboard chits. And it's like, why? Well, you play this game one time and you know immediately that it's a masterpiece. Uh, everything you just said is true. It is uh, remarkably well-balanced. It's incredibly uh, easy to learn, but complex to master like all the great games are. Things that strike that strike me about it, because I don't want to spend the whole episode talking about it, but the two things I want to say now. One, it's the most thematic game I think I've ever played. I think I've decided I'm willing to say that. It's the most thematic game. And that's because I do have a very specific definition of thematic that I work with in my mind, which is, does the game tell me who I am and then does that role like inform my actions? And that is totally true of this game. Like you know exactly who you are. You're either the U.S. or the USSR at the height of the Cold War, and the tension and the reality of the Cold War like comes alive on the table. You're trying to manage the DEFCON level and prevent war happening while you're carefully plotting where you might try to do a coup or to realign the influence so that you can gain power in a country. You're trying to uh, weigh all these decisions that feel real, and uh, it is amazing. The The Cold War really comes alive every time you play it. It's incredible. I mean, short of a true tabletop role-playing experience, it's the most that I have like gotten lost in kind of the fiction here. The other thing that I want to point out about it without getting into a huge rule explanation but this is basically a game of hand management. You get a hand of cards on your turn that you play to take actions. And the cards can either be USSR or US cards. Uh, you get cards for both sides. And when you play a card that is your opponent's card, you can use it to, to do something to, to take operations. It has an operations value. It might be worth two points or three points. And you can spend that to take actions on the board. But if it's one of your opponent's cards, it will trigger the event, and it will often be bad for you. 
So the tension that comes from knowing that you need to play a card with a high ops value, but with a bad event that could negatively impact you is incredible. And so figuring out how to manage your hand to like slow roll events that are bad for you, but then figure out which ones you can kind of eat and burn early. Amazing, richly thematic, so complex. We're having a ton of fun with it. And frankly, I can't wait to get it to the table again. We may yet even do a whole episode about Twilight Struggle. I'm not sure, but uh, it's a game that I think more than lives up to the hype. If you've never played a war game or if GMT games like heavy kind of dry historical games kind of freak you out and you think like, "Ah, that's a genre that I'll never get into, I would say give Twilight Struggle a try. It's actually incredibly easy to learn and richly engaging. and I think it's worth adding to anybody's collection. We could talk this game up for hours of course because we love it so much but we are going to save that for another day we are going to go ahead and move on to a return of bitter board gamers where we read out bad reviews from gamers who just didn't quite get the point of the game that they were playing and matt and max will try to guess which game the review is from are you guys ready i am so hyped for the return of this (laughs) yeah i'm ready all right so our first review the game is simply unintuitive. It's not the mess of a rulebook which bores me, but simply those things you can do which all look kind of generic. I didn't got any feeling while I played it besides boredom. Of course, it is challenging arranging things to get most out of it, but I want a theme, not a game made for a calculator. Fun is completely missing in this game. But if you like a slender diet with a lot of worker placement and calculating things till you get nuts, this could be your game. Oh, man. Can I get a, wait, can I get one hint? Is this a game we've played? It is, in fact, a game we've played. Okay. Okay. Max, what are your thoughts? Well, initially, I thought it was going to be Tiny Towns. (laughs) I had the same thought. Oh, I hate that game (laughs) so much. It's exactly what I thought. But then he talked about the worker placement aspect. And so now I'm like, well, okay. So what is it? It's not Tiny Towns. Uh, when it was original, when it, okay, so this is the evolution of my thoughts. I initially thought Terra Mystica for some reason, because when we talked about the dense, uh, uh, manual, I just remember the first time I tried to read the instructions of Terra Mystica and then I almost mm-hmm. died. Uh, and then, uh, and then I thought, I immediately thought Tiny Town. I was just like, oh, this sounds like Tiny Town. That game is like a algebra equation, uh, that I can't solve. And, but yeah, the worker placement is throwing me. This one's throwing me off. I don't know, maybe it's one of these uh, Vital Lacerda games that we just played. So, because I read those rule books, and it's the first time you read it, you're just going crazy. You're like, literally, Terramisca, you're like, am I, what am I doing? I don't, I'm not smart enough for this. It could be on Mars, but you got, you, you got one more review of the same game? All right, second review. Gratuitous complexity to do very simple things. Gratuitous complexity to do very simple things. Uh, that just feels like somebody that's been watching me at work every day. <laughs> I think I'm going to guess on Mars. Max, what are you going to guess? You know what? I'm probably going to have to guess either on Mars or because we're talking about some Stefan Feld games, Castles of Burgundy. I'm going to go with Castles of Burgundy. It is, in fact, on Mars. Matt gets one right for once. Oh, man, that's huge. I, I was tempted to guess Gloomhaven just for, like, old time's sake, because I guessed Gloomhaven yeah. on everyone the last time. I was going to say, you know what? i got to disagree. And, and this comes from somebody that was almost, like, emotionally broken the first time we played on Mars. Uh, but it teaches itself to you. That's my highest praise that I can give to v- Vital Lacerda's design sense. It is complex. It arguably is complex for complexity's sake. But it becomes intuitive. Like it, 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 it becomes more intuitive. Like the second time I played it, I more than doubled my score, which that told me something that like, okay, I'm getting it. it. Anytime that I'm like, I feel like I'm getting better at a game. I, I can't completely fault it. I do have a bonus review for you guys real quick that I know Max would get a kick out of. <laughs> I totally understand why Lacerda's games cost $150. Each unnecessary mechanism costs $1 each. <laughs> That's just salty. That is super salty. Oh, uh, wow. Is that the same game or a different one? That is the same game. That is that is on Mars. Somebody did not did not enjoy the complexity of that game. Max, what are your thoughts about? You're loving on Mars, though, right? Like, what are you thinking about that game? Like, I am hugely on the Vital Lacerda bandwagon right now because I feel like if you play his games, you will actually become smarter. 
because your brain is having to create new neural pathways for you to learn how to play the game. And we all need that. We need that, especially in our current climate of, you know, not having critical thinking capacity. If you look at any social media or any news right now, we just lack that. And I feel like we need stuff like Mm. coming in and having us be more than we can be. So if we all played heavy board games, like society would improve, like in general, is that what we're saying? Yes. Like that meme where it shows like the future. It's like the future if we all played Vassal Lacerda games. Yes, that's a meme. That's ha- that needs to happen right now. You, I think I think we should make that meme and post it to the Dispire story uh, d- soon. That's perfect. <laughs> a big fan of On Mars as well. And I'm sad for the people that just didn't enjoy it as much because I think you're right. There's a lot to love in that game. But, all right, second game. Here we go. First review. The True Nadir of Euro Design. Do you like to slowly and painfully count to 200 in very small increments? by yourself and others, then look no further. Uh, what? Wait, wait I, need, I, need, I need to hear that one more time. You need to hear it one more time? Okay, here we go. The true nadir of Euro design. Do you like to slowly and painfully count to 200 in very small increments by yourself and others? Then look no further. Count to 200? What game is about counting to 200? I will say this. I don't think the number 200 is it's more of an example than oh. it is a hard number. Don't oh. focus on the 200. Don't focus on 200. Okay, well, I want my uh, I want I want my one more hint that I asked last time. Is this a game that we've played? It is in fact a game that we've played. Okay. Well, we've played a lot of games. Um, <laughs> that doesn't help. Uh just a game about counting. I'm going to go ahead and give you the second review real quick. Okay. Let's do that, please. Let's just combine a horrible pool of luck with boring and bland mechanics and hope that the game is good. Unfortunately, it isn't. The games are repetitive, the boards are boring and uninspiring, the theme is cardboard. Way better games out there to play seriously. Wait a minute. If they're talking about Castles of Burgundy, I want to go fight somebody. <laughs> is that your guess? <laughs> That's my guess, because he said the boards were boring, and they're not wrong, but it's a masterpiece. Uh, Max, what do you think? I'm, I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna go ahead and agree with him this time because I was wrong about on Mars and you know, but I'm gonna say yes, Castles of Burgundy. You guys are on fire today. It is Castles of Burgundy. <laughs> Owl. I need the, I need the name and address of that person so I go to their house and talk to them about why they're wrong and they need to get their right. They need to get their soul right with uh, the world, the universe. Or listen to this podcast and learn later on when we talk about it why it is such a masterpiece. In minutes, I'm gonna tell you. All right, so talking about Castles of Burgundy, of course, we're going to go ahead and jump to a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to be talking about that very game as well as the spiritual sequel, Castles of Tuscany. All right, so welcome back to the Dice Pirates. And we're going to get into our main topic today, which is a tale of two castles. We're going to be looking at two games from uh, designer Stefan Feld a preeminent kind of uh, master, I guess you could say, of the Euro game form, and his two games, The Castles of Burgundy and Castles of Tuscany, which is an interesting example of a designer creating a kind of a remix, a spiritual sequel of a game. And we wanted to look at these head-to-head and try to figure out which one should you buy if you don't have uh, either, or if you have one, should you get the other? So we're going to kind of break them down and kind of get into it. I want to open up the discussion, though, with just kind of a quick sense of who uh, Stefan Feld is. Like I said, he's sort of, he's one of these uh, name designers that is considered to be one of the kind of masters of this modern kind of golden age. And he really kind of exemplifies the essence of what we mean when we talk about the Euro game. Euro games are distinct from uh, other types of uh, board games you see with their heavy emphasis on clean, elegant designs that are oftentimes designed to be games that you can master because they're not necessarily as... uh, uh, dependent upon luck or randomness the way games in like the American or Ameritrash tradition are. These are games that are designed to run like a Swiss clock. They have tight rules and elegant systems, and they're games that you can master. And Stefan Feld has proven over a, a long career of making games that he is one of the masters of that form. Some of the noteworthy games that he's made include... Uh, Notre Dame, uh, Bora Bora, Trajan, and then of course the uh, game that he's probably most well known for, the game that is probably most beloved, Castles of Burgundy. 
the things about Stefan Fell's design that are uh, noteworthy are that he tends to, each game tend to have its one defining mechanic. In fact, in a really interesting uh, interview on uh, opinionatedgamers.com, he talked about how his design process often starts with a singular mechanic, something that he feels like is the hook, and then he builds the game out around that hook. And so you have something like in the game Trajan where he has this Mancala mechanic, and then that kind of drives the game. And so that kind of brings me to uh, Castles of Burgundy, which uh, is generally considered to be one of the you know modern masterpieces of the board game renaissance. Uh, it's currently ranked number 15 on uh, uh, Board Game Gate's all-time list. And that game's defining mechanic, the thing that really sets it apart from almost anything else in the Euro genre, is its use of dice. Dice are a real rarity in Euro games because, again, these are games that are not necessarily uh, designed to be dependent on luck. They're supposed to run uh, like a like a train showing up on time at the station. You know, it, it, it's a system that you can master and get better at. So the fact that he brought dice into the mix into a Euro format is uh, was really kind of revolutionary and wild. But the use of dice in that game is really ingenious because it actually narrows your choices and reduces analysis paralysis. And it forces you to think on your feet to what you can do with the options that are available to you on any given turn. To give it a quick setup, I don't want to give like get super, super deep into the rules. But the basic idea of Castles of Burgundy is that you are a noble of some kind in in medieval France, and you are trying to build your estate. And so you have a player board with a grid of uh, sections that are defined by color, and you're going to be purchasing tiles and placing them down on the corresponding sections. And as you complete them, you'll score points. So if you fill up a, a, a a brown city space or a green agricultural space, as you fill those up, you start to score points. What makes the game come alive, though, is that as you place each one of these tiles down, they're going to trigger uh, unique powers and effect that, if you play smart, can trigger really powerful combos. Uh, The dice come into play is that on every turn, you're going to roll two dice, and the numbers that show are going to define what you can do. So you can spend a dice to purchase a tile from the uh, center board, uh, that matches the number you rolled, or you can place a die, place a dice onto your uh, tableau, again using a dice that matches the number rolled. But you can mitigate that a little bit by spending workers to turn a die uh, a number uh, up or down for each worker that you spent. So it's not totally luck driven. You have uh, some control, and even though you can only do those two actions with each dice, you can potentially trigger incredibly powerful combos in this game. For instance, you might place the castle, which lets you take an additional action as if you had that die. So you could grab another tile off the board and then place that one with your second dice, and then that one lets you place another tile from your dock, or then even grab another one. So you can quickly stack up four or more actions on your turn, even just using your two die. It's a really compelling game that is uh, relatively simple to learn. Uh, it's 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 heavy-ish. It's a good introduction, I think, to Euro gaming or to heavier gaming. But the dice are a remarkably helpful component because they do narrow your choices. You don't have that overwhelming sense of like having a million options in front of you on a turn. You really only have a handful of things you can do, and because of that, you're just trying to make a smart choice with what's in front of you. It's a brilliant elegant, compelling design that honestly is one of my probably top three games at any given moment. It's something that I would play almost any time. Max, you and I have uh, squared off on that game dozens of times, it feels like. Uh, What are some of your thoughts about Castles of Burgundy? I feel like Castles is uh, an elegant game for about a a middleweight game. I think it's a middleweight more so than like a heavy game. but one of the things I really appreciate about it is that it does not favor my play style, uh, as opposed to Castles of Tuscany, which we can get into later. Um, but even though you're trying to be, you know, a master of the strategy you have, you have to be reactionary because you do have that dice roll that you have to either mitigate or use a power to help mitigate or, you know, workers or whatever. Uh, but if you cannot change out of your strategy, then you will be left behind. Uh, and I sometimes falter with that, but I think it's a great game. 
Yeah, I think you really hit on what I think sets this apart. I mean, a lot of Euro games tend to be essentially engine builders. You're looking for optimization, and you're looking for a way to create this very reliable points-generating machine that either turns out resources that you can spend to make points. And if you're good at processes, if you're good at kind of like figuring out efficiencies and patterns, uh, you're going to like excel at those games. And Max is, you're totally right. Like that's, that's your wheelhouse. Uh, I feel like you maybe missed your calling and not being like a foreman on a factory and figuring out how to like get the widgets moving down the line like faster. Uh, but that's, that's your jam. Castles of Burgundy rewards like a different skill set that's sort of unique in the Euro game genre. It rewards like figuring out uh, rapidly changing conditions because you roll those dice and you kind of have to make do with what you've got. But the thing that makes Castles of Burgundy special, the reason I keep coming back to it, is it's essentially a game about making combos, right? Like when you look at your dice that you rolled and then look at the board, then it clicks and you realize, oh snap, if I play this one tile, it's going to set this chain reaction that's going to let me play like three more tiles and I'm going to score all these points. There's almost like nothing better in gaming than finding that perfect combination and watching the gears like start to like fall together. It is super fun and it feels great. Ian, I know you've gotten a chance to play Castles of Burgundy with us several times. How do you feel about that game? Like you said, Castles of Burgundy is a game that rewards you if you're able to be light on your feet and move back and forth between strategies, especially because the dice are going to dictate what you're allowed to do, and maybe you just roll something you weren't expecting. And, I mean, to the game's credit, there's a lot you can do. You can adjust your rolls if you need something slightly different. There are ways that you can get what you want regardless. And I think that's what makes the game strong, is it focuses what you can do, but there's plenty of depth in the mechanics that allow you to manipulate your dice to get to where you want to be. If you have a grander strategy, you can play around that. You might not be able to get exactly where you want to be, but it does benefit people who can put a long-term goal in there and the way that the scoring i mean you mentioned that you know you have these colored areas that you're trying to fill in and depending on how large the area is the more points you get and so it benefit like you can get quick easy points and you get you know additional bonuses when you finish an area or you can go for the long game and try to play those but of course you might have trouble getting everything you need and there's a real there's just a really satisfying like feedback loop in that and the way that you can like you said the you can finish things and immediately move on to the next one and you can start to really understand the way that the game works especially as you gain more abilities it's a fantastic game it's one that i really enjoy i definitely think it is and definitely is one of my top games as well because i mean it, it deserves it but i do want to really focus as well on just that mechanic of the color matching and finding these sets of tiles to put together and scoring off of that because that is definitely the constant between these two games and what i think for these two games he's decided is the mechanic that he likes to play off of yeah definitely i mean i think there's a couple more things in burgundy that i think are worth like touching on before we pivot to tuscany one is uh there's various like layers of like point opportunities in uh burgundy that i think are interesting one is um the game plays out over a series of like rounds and in earlier rounds, you get a bigger bonus for completing a section. So, for example, completing uh, a three-tile section is always worth a certain amount of points, and then you get an additional bonus in each round. And the bonus is bigger in earlier rounds. So there is, in Burgundy, this sense of, like, it's uh, to your advantage to try to complete sections as fast as you can in earlier rounds to get a bigger point. But then there's large sections that you know are going to take more time. So there's always this kind of like careful push and pull of like going after quicker scoring spaces, but then having a long strategy that you're going for. That's something that you see him exploring in a really interesting way in Tuscany, this idea of it being to your advantage to score early. And we're going to talk about that. And I don't know that he was entirely successful in the implementation of this in Castles of Tuscany. The other thing that I briefly want to talk about, just because it's sort of notorious, you really can't talk about Castles of Burgundy without talking about the fact that it is, uh, is it ugly? Is it ugly or just, uh... Terrible components? Charming in its own, uh, sad way. I don't know. I think you said it, I think you said it right the first time. It's a little bit of an uh, ugly game, if we're being completely honest, at least, you know, compared to the things we have now. Yeah, and it's not just that the visual design is bland, it's overwhelmingly beige like a like a sandwich made of sand i mean it is just uh it's it's a it's a sad little beige pile 
And um, it is also, though, really poor quality components, like uh, Max just said, like wafer-thin cardboard, flimsy everything. Even the dice are, like, tiny and not particularly satisfying to roll. It's just one of the most disappointing things. It has that, uh, it's made by uh, the board game publisher Aaliyah, whose design uh, ethos appears to just be, eh, that'll work. So uh, my dream, uh, my dream, and I'm going to say it out loud right now so that I can do that Oprah the Secret thing where you will it into being. Uh, my dream is for Stonemeyer Games, for Jamie Stegmeyer to somehow get a hold of the license of Castles of Burgundy and produce a ridiculously overproduced version of the game made out of luxury cardboard with like matte finished tops and a recessed player board that you slot your little tiles down in and it's ooh so satisfying and the dice are like those big chunky wood dice from Wingspan and they go clunk 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 down on the table and it's amazing and it costs $150 and I'll pay it. I'll pay it twice. It, like I, that's my dream. I want there to be a luxury deluxe edition of this game uh, that hits the market. They did do an anniversary edition a couple of years ago that has marginally better art. Uh, it's a little bit more vibrant. It's less beige. I don't actually don't love it. It's actually kind of it's kind of aired in another direction. When I looked at it, I thought about getting it. When I looked at it, I was like, oh, now it's gone into this like cartoony space that I don't like either. And I, as far as I can tell, it's still the same quality of like cardboard or whatever. So I don't know. Anyway, that's my rant about the it's uh. A, a wonderful game, my personal top Euro game, but it's sort of garbage components, but that's kind of become part of its charm. I don't think we can downplay this enough, though, that how weak sauce the components are. Like, if you are a fan of Brooklyn Nine-Nine, uh, Castles of Burgundy is the Charles Boyle of board games. Or if you like Parks <laughs> and Recreation, Castles of Burgundy is the Jerry Gergich of board games because of the how... Just kind of like, uh, the components are. And yes, if Stonemire Games or someone else would come along and really pimp out the components, I think you would have something that would elevate it beyond, you know, rank 15. Uh, and even maybe even give a higher average rating. Because currently, I think it says that at 8.1, but that's with 47,000 reviews. And that's saying a lot that you got that many people who are like, this is a, an 8 plus game. So yeah, so Castles of Burgundy is uh, a deserved classic. And so that's uh, what made so much excitement and interest in uh, 2019 when word got out that Stefan Feld was releasing a spiritual sequel, a, a follow-up, a remix, if you will, on uh, this theme in the form of Castles of Tuscany. And we got a copy uh, around Christmas time. Max, you actually uh, picked that up for the group and got that uh, for us to play. Thank you. And we've gotten in a few um, uh, sessions of that recently. And I got to admit, like, I was hyped. I mean, being the number one Burgundy fan in a group that generally likes Burgundy, I was hyped to play it. And I have very complex and decidedly mixed feelings about this attempt to remix the formula. I'm going to give a quick overview. Um, in, in some ways, Castles of Tuscany is uh, the same game. You're still a noble person. You're still trying to build your awesome estate. You're still purchasing tiles from a central bank and placing them down on a player board. You're still scoring points from completing a uh, connected uh, colored sections and you are still sort of activating powers and abilities uh, when you place these tiles but there are beyond that massive changes to the way the game works uh, some very successful some less so noteworthy are one you no longer have a individual player board instead you're handed uh, modular components that allow you to construct your uh, tableau that you're going to build on that's a really interesting choice. It gives you a little bit of agency. In Castles of Burgundy, there's uh, a set of uh, pre-made uh, little tableaus with various configurations of sections, some of which uh, create different scoring opportunities and are make it uh, a unique game every time you play it. But this gives you even more agency in Tusky. And this is probably my favorite part about the game because you can determine kind of how you want to align these interconnected uh, sections of your tableau to create bigger scoring sections. Do I want uh, three red tiles to connect? Do I want three gray, which are the mines? 
you know, you can make some uh, a few limited choices. So that's some fun like player agency. The other change, the most significant change though in Castle of the Tuscany are that the dice are gone. Really the one of the defining things in Burgundy, the rolling of those dice and the when the way they limit your player your action is gone. And instead in Tuscany, you draw cards and you play sets of cards in order to take actions. For example, you need to play two uh, agricultural cards, two of the light green cards, to place a light green agricultural tile onto your tableau or to acquire uh, a tile uh, from the center playing area. If you don't have two matching and you want to acquire a tile, you uh, can substitute any one for another two. So you could ultimately play actually four cards, two sets for a single uh, to, to get the tile that you want. So you have a little bit of control there to mitigate the randomness of drawing cards from a stack and playing sets, but it's highly inefficient to play that way. Uh, playing four cards for a tile instead of uh, just two is uh, really, really difficult, but you get stuck sometimes and you feel like you have to do that. The other significant change is what happens when you place your tile down. In Castles of Burgundy, uh, there were a wide range of powers and effects that would trigger every time you placed a tile, so much so that your player board needed a rather extensive uh, shorthand section there of like what happens that you have to kind of learn to learn the game. In uh, Castles of uh, Tuscany, it's greatly narrowed down. Instead of a wide variety of city tiles and different powers, all the city tiles do one thing, which is they let you grab an upgrade and add it to your player board. And so this actually subtly changes Castles of Tuscany from being a game of combinations of where you trigger a chain reaction and becoming a much, in some ways, a much more traditional engine builder because you can slowly build out your player board to acquire additional powers that are reliably trigger and kind of fit your play style. You can uh, acquire an upgrade that lets you draw more cards when you take the draw action, or you can apply acquire an upgrade that lets you get more workers when you place an orange tile and you get workers. Doing that can kind of let you customize how you want to play and get more efficient. So in that sense, it's a game that is becoming a more traditional Euro because it's about engine building. Then there's the final change, and actually I kind of want to wait a minute and talk about it, and that is scoring. They made a radical and wild change to how they handle scoring, but I kind of want to pause there so that we don't just have like a fire hose of like rules information. So I want to pause here and kind of get you guys' thoughts. Uh, Max, we've played a few games now. What is your sense of just the basic mechanics of the game, the changes they made to the Burgundy formula, and just the overall feel of it? So first I want to say it's almost like they looked at the components from Burgundy and you're like, let's step it up just one notch. Nothing crazy, just one notch. Just a single one. Let's go from negative one so, to so one. We get, <laughs> so we get some actual wooden meeples for the workers. The quarry now produces a stone wooden piece, you know, and, and the tiles that you can use to build your engine are actually, you know, nice cardboard. Okay, okay, okay. They're okay cardboard as opposed to the real flimsy material that you get in Burgundy. So, yes, I think it's a step in the right direction as far as components, even, albeit a small step, but... It's it's like a very pared down version of Castles of Burgundy. It's it's almost an entire point uh, lower on the difficulty scale. I think it's a, currently at a rating of about a two point one eight, whereas uh, Burgundy sits at about a three point oh. Um, and you can definitely tell that. And like you said earlier, it's really more of an engine builder. The masterpiece that Castles of Burgundy is, it definitely pairs that down and it's a little more simplistic. Now, that's great for ease of access or if you're just getting into the game. And I definitely like the cards, you know, and I and I like the feel of the components, but it definitely is is like a watered-down version of Burgundy. Yeah, I think that I, it feels watered-down, but that also feels true to what I think Stefan Fell was trying to accomplish here based on some things I've read and some of the interviews. Uh, he was doing an AMA where he talked a little bit about the... Uh, design of this and essentially as i understand it the goal was to create a faster more streamlined uh castles of burgundy and so yeah it it, it reduces some complexity there's not as many uh unique powers and abilities on the tiles to have to learn uh the dice getting rid of the dice and changing it in for card drafting in a way makes the game more streamlined because you don't i don't know i have, I have complicated feelings about that but just overall it is just meant to be a lighter 
more streamlined version. Ian, you've played uh, Tuscany, I think, only once, but just what's your kind of initial sense of like how it compared and, and how you feel about it? Interestingly enough, my initial impression was actually that Tuscany did not do as good a job as inherently explaining its rules to you as Burgundy did. Within Burgundy, the dice allowed you to focus on where you were taking your tiles from. They gave you limited choices, and you also had the same restrictions on your player board on where you put things. And the powers, while there were a lot of powers that you had to figure out, those... They were limited, and they were a little more limited in, in a sense, to the extent that where you, you could create these combos, but it was less of an engine builder. So it wasn't as important that you know the ins and outs of the way that everything works. Obviously, if you wanted to win, you wanted to do well, you would need to understand that. But within the components and the way that Tuscany works, it just felt a little bit harder to understand just from the get-go. And obviously, as you get into it, and once you play it, you understand that, oh, okay, yeah, it's a little more basic, I get it now, it's just a more simple engine builder. But in terms of the component design, the way that the game explains itself, it was a little bit more, it, it was a little more convoluted, I felt, than Burgundy. Um, I also want to point out, you know, Max mentioned that they bumped up the design one notch. They also decided that they needed something with a little more pizzazz, I guess, and they randomly decided to put just a giant lion door knocker in the middle of the point track for no reason it doesn't connect to anything else it's just there yeah. it's it, you assume it's going to have something to do with the game but you never touch it yeah it, it is it's very bizarre to me it's a, it is weird design in fact that's and, and that's as good a point as any to go ahead and transition and talk about the scoring so yeah if you've seen a picture of castles of, of tuscany all set up you have noticed this giant round thing in the middle of the playing board uh, 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 a round track with a with a lion head in the middle and you probably have wondered what exactly that is and how it comes into play into the game. Well, that's the point track. And there's a very unique thing happening with this point track. There's an inner and an outer ring. Uh, when you score a point in the round, you score a point on the green outer ring. So you score five points, you move your uh, point tracker up a few spaces on the green track. Uh, you score five more and move it up some more. At the end of the round, and the rounds are triggered whenever uh, a player depletes their supply of tiles on their player board from, on, on the leftmost space. We didn't really explain all that. It's not a big deal. But essentially, at a certain point, a player will trigger the end of the round. And when that happens, uh, all the points that have been accumulated on every player's green track move down to the red. And then nothing is reset. And so round two proceeds. And say so you scored 10 points in the first round. Now you have 10 points on the red track. You score maybe 5, 10, 15 more points on the uh, on the green track. When uh, the second round ends, all the points on the green track are added to uh, the red track. So if you had 10 points in the first round and you had uh, 20 points in, uh, and you, score, you got to 20 points in the second round, you now have 30 on the red track. The 10 points that you scored in round one have scored you twice. And this repeats. In, uh, this, in, the, in the third round, you keep adding to the green track, and then all those points are once again dumped onto uh, the red track. And at the final, uh, and whoever's ahead on the red track at the end of the game wins. This is a really bizarre scoring mechanic, and I can't emphasize enough. Uh, the points you score in the first round are scored three times, and the points you score in the second round are scored twice. And so what this means is that you have to get ahead early. You have to be competitive in the very first round if you're significantly behind in round one of Castles of Tuscany. I just don't see any way for you to reasonably catch up. Uh, it's a game about exponential point growth. And that actually kind of works counter in my mind to this idea of it being like a lighter, breezier version of Burgundy. This is a much more cutthroat and much more intense version of Castles of Burgundy because you cannot mess around and try to figure out your strategy. You got to be scoring points right out the gate or you're going to get wasted. What do you guys think about this uh, wild scoring mechanic in Tuscany? Oh, man. So if that explanation sounded a little confusing and it wasn't easy to follow, you're not alone. When we first played it, it had to be explained to me and the other person in our group as well. It, it, we had to have it explained to us multiple times how this scoring mechanic works. And the idea that the points you score are scored, the points you score in the first round are then 
also scored each round and so it, it it's very it's not intuitive it doesn't make sense to begin with and like you said it just ends up with this runaway winner and it's far and away my least favorite part of the game i like i like tuscany i think tuscany is a good game i think in some ways tuscany is potentially a better game than burgundy in some ways but i think the scoring alone is what holds it back for me because as a concept i just cannot get behind it in burgundy like you said you're rewarding for scoring earlier but generally the only things you can score are smaller areas so you get more points for doing it earlier but you also have to focus on smaller areas and if you decide to go for a larger area you're going to get more points but you'll get less of a bonus so there's a natural like give and take to it do i go for later ones do i go for early ones whereas in this game there's no real balance there you have to go for early points there's no real difference in the way that it approaches there is one way to approach the game you have to go for early points you have to keep building or you're going to be behind and you will never catch up yeah, I feel like I understand why Stefan Feld was going for the the early point scoring again. You know, because in Castles of Burgundy, the earlier you put out your completed sections, the more points you score. And so there's that sense of urgency you want to create, uh, especially because, you know, in, in Tuscany, the max area that you can complete, I think, is three, three tiles only. Whereas in Burgundy, I think it's six or seven. So... You want that sense of urgency, but I just feel like it kind of falls a little bit flat because it, it is hard because it's easy to have a, a runaway leader where you're trying to catch up. But, you know, once the the third round hits, like the person who is in the lead, I think in all the games we played, whoever's in the lead in the third round always won the game. Yes, that that is true. Uh, and I've tried to, like, go into this discussion with, like, an open mind because... Uh, I have not won Castles of Tuscany. I've tried to say, like, do I not like this game because I haven't won it, which isn't really a fair way to measure a game. Uh, and, and I've won a lot of Castles of Burgundy. Uh, I consider myself to be reasonably good at Castles of Burgundy. So I have struggled with Castles of Tuscany. And I've decided that uh, I just don't like the pressure that it puts on you as much. It is a very different game, and I and I do think I understand why Stefan Feld did it, and I think it really was to create a game that's about being fast and being aggressive, because it's a game about essentially about compound interest in a way. Like you know, you put some points on the green track early, and it's like money in the bank that is only going to grow exponentially in value over each round. So if you can score 10, 15 points in round one, that's huge. That's almost like impossible to overcome, you know. So this is a really this is a game about getting fast, getting efficient with your movements. It's it's more cutthroat, but in its own way, it becomes you know more stressful. It kind of cuts into what I like about Castles of Burgundy, which is that it's a sort of zen game. It is uh, a game about kind of being aggressive, trying to score points, but it's more chill and it takes place over like a longer arc. Castles of Tuscany games are short. And they're nasty. Like you got to get moving, and <laughs> you got to start scoring points. Um, I do like it's the streamlining and how fast it plays. I definitely like that aspect, and I do like the the newer artwork on Tuscany. But you know, with the the kind of the giant centerpiece of the game, which is the point board, which is kind of useless. That is its one downfall in components. Uh, but the game itself, outside of the runaway leader weakness i do like the game a lot and i do think it has a place in people's uh on people's gaming shelves because it is you know it's it's nice to look at it's got some good components and it's fast and by no means does it topple the the reigning number one game of uh stefan Feld being castles of burgundy yeah burgundy is definitely a game that is on its own for sure it's amazing but tuscany is a great game i'd be very interested to play tuscany without the unique scoring mechanic if you just played it as a normal scoring game i wonder if that would break it because the, everything else about tuscany i love and it's just the scoring mechanic and to kind of delve into that because i realized that the reason i hate the scoring mechanic even beyond the runaway leader is that it robs me of one of my favorite moments in board gaming when you play a euro game like this you are trying to you're trying to do the best you can you have your own little corner of the board you're doing everything you can to build points and then at the end of the game everybody starts adding up their points and if there's a point tracker you start moving your point tracker across the board and you get to see where you ended up and that last little moment of tension like okay how did i do compared to everyone else when you're playing scythe and at the very end of the game you start adding up okay, okay i got this i got this okay an extra 20 coins for here 
and you go ahead and all of a sudden you have this pile of points in front of you and you look around and you're like, okay, how did I do compared to everyone else? In this game, when you get to that last round, you know exactly who wins. You know it. Just just 100%. Because if you're ahead on the cumulative point tracker, you're probably going to be the one who wins just because there's no way people can catch up to you. So it, it that's one of my favorite moments in gaming is just like that that moment of like wonder, like, oh man, okay, I wonder how we did. And this game manages to remove that entirely because the way that the cumulative point scoring works, it just means that if you end with a larger point total than that, you might as well not add up and finish the scoring overall. So so Max and I played a game, the last time we played it, we played a two-player game uh, a couple of weeks ago. And uh, it went, you know, Mac, Max got out uh, ahead early, uh, not by a significant margin, but he held on to the lead uh, and extended it in the second round. And so I went into the third round uh, pretty behind on the red track. But I actually gained some ground. Uh, I scored some big sections. Uh, I closed the gap. And correct me if I'm wrong, Max, but I think I finished maybe five or four uh, points behind you in the end. And I sort of, I did sort of close the gap a bit. Yeah, you started the round like 15 or 17 points-ish behind. And then, yeah, you closed the gap significantly. So I think it's possible to come from behind and win, but I think it's very, very difficult. Yeah, so I had I actually had luck kind of go against me a, a little bit in that game in one way, and that you actually scored some points on the red track through the yield cards. And this is a unique mechanic in Castles of Tuscany that doesn't exist in Castles of Burgundy. Uh, whenever you place uh, a road tile in um, Castles of Tuscany, you get to draw from this deck that is called the yield deck, and it's like a little wagon, and when you flip it over, you see what's in the wagon, and you get that bonus. And sometimes it's uh, being able to draw some more cards or get a worker, but other times it can be points, sometimes on the green track, but sometimes on the red track. And that's a huge advantage uh, to get red track points in this game. And so, uh, Max, you had scored a few uh, red track points. I think that might even be have been the difference in victory at the end. So it's really interesting that even though they got rid of the dice, uh, Castles of Tuscany almost feels like it's more luck-driven than Castles of Burgundy. I'd definitely be interested in playing it again because there was a lot of that that, I, of course, I did not get. Like you said, I've only played this one time. Everything I have are, are really first impressions, of course, and I would be very interested in playing again. I think there's a lot to love there, and it would be interesting to see if the scoring mechanic maybe is not quite so harsh as it feels at first glance. But I do feel that when 90% of the time you know who's going to win, by the you know middle of turn three, end of turn two, I, I don't I don't like that very much, and I feel like that's how a lot of it tends to be. I do have one kind of final point that I want to to illustrate, and then I think we'll kind of close out this discussion. Uh, but I want to I want to point out one more significant difference between Castles of Tuscany and Castles of Burgundy, and it's something that didn't immediately like click to me. But in Castles of Burgundy, you are able to take two actions on your turn. You spend each of the dice you rolled to do something. And uh, then as a result of the combos that you trigger, you can even do more than two things. You could potentially take three, four or more actions. In uh, Castles of Tuscany, you take one action on your turn and one only. And uh, occasionally can take a second action if you are able to uh, spend uh, the castle tile. And only the castle tile really lets you take uh, an additional free action. And so, and it's because of that, because you're taking fewer actions, Castles of Tuscany, to me, you feel a little bit more limited on your turns, and, and the game also feels infinitely more stressful. Because occasionally in Castle, one of the actions that you can do on uh, in Castles of Tuscany, uh, one that you're going to have to do occasionally, is draw. Sometimes you just don't have the cards you need in your hand to take any meaningful action with the tiles. And so you've got to draw. And so you can either draw two or maybe three or more, depending on what bonuses you picked up. And drawing cards in Castles of Tuscany feels incredibly unsatisfying. It feels like a wasted turn. In Castles of Burgundy, uh, you've, you've rarely had those wasted turns. Now, if you had nothing else to do on the board, if you could not spend a tile to do anything you could turn in a tile to get workers. And the workers are the things that let you adjust the die. And so that's kind of the equivalent of taking the draw action. But it was really rare that you would have to spend both of your die to do workers. 
uh, usually you could do at least one thing and then maybe you would get workers with your second die. But there are turns in Castles of Tuscany where you just don't feel like you're making any progress. You're just drawing cards and then you're watching your opponents do all this cool stuff and score points. And that's really demoralizing. And that's something that really stuck out to me the more I played it and I realized that's that's kind of harsh. I would say that the, the thing about Tuscany where I feel like it can't surpass Burgundy is because, I don't know if it's because he streamlined it, the failed purpose in streamlining it was to to make it easier to, if you're like an optimizer or a mid-maxer as a player type, that you can have the strategy from the very beginning and then see that strategy through without necessarily being interrupted. Whereas I felt like in Burgundy, you're always having to adjust what your strategy may be. And I think that's what makes Burgundy more of a masterpiece. I mean, granted, you know, he was trying to make a simpler version of it and you have to take that into account. But the thing that makes burgundy such a classic is that it has that ability um, or that aspect of it whereas tuscany doesn't and so while i do enjoy playing tuscany and we'll play it again um it's not necessarily something where i feel like you have to own it whereas i feel like if you are a true aficionado of board games you're going to have classic games like burgundy in your in your shelf collection or on your shelf i think that's a great point so i kind of want to close out the discussion with a couple of quick questions just to kind of wrap it up for people and contextualize it so one, if you don't own either Castles of Burgundy or Castles of Tuscany, and you had to recommend one, what would you recommend? If depend so depending on what your gaming history is, if you own Settlers of Catan um, and you don't own any other games, then you probably want to go with Castles of Tuscany. Uh, I feel like it'll be easier to learn and play. But if you already have games like Terra Mystica or Lords of Waterdeep and you've played simpler gateway games then yes, definitely jump on Castles of Burgundy, even if you're getting the 2019 version instead of the 2011 version, uh, which has the slightly better artwork, but no less simple uh, components. I definitely think you should go with Burgundy. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think it, it comes down to like very fine differences in your play style. Um, if, you, uh, if, you, if you prefer an engine builder, and if you don't mind that it is pretty intense about scoring points quickly and fast uh and it's a little unforgiving then castles of tuscany might be for you i think it's probably the right game for some people and for some game groups if you if the dice rolling thing in uh, burgundy's always put you off tuscany might be the thing otherwise i think burgundy's just the better game if you don't own either and you're only going to buy one uh i think in the test of time, only one of these games is going to be considered like a timeless masterpiece, and I think that's Burgundy. I think a serious like board game hobbyist, if you're only going to buy one, you should probably buy Burgundy. So the final question I want to ask is, if you already have Castles of Burgundy, a classic that a lot of people already have in their collection, do you need Castles of Tuscany? I definitely think that if you are the person who has the space on your shelf for more games, um, I think it's a it's a toss-up. Yes, it's it's enjoyable, it's worth playing. But there are so many good and great games out there uh, that you really have to take a moment to, to reflect and say, hey, uh, this game, that is, it's, it's good enough, but is it great? So it depends on how much shelf space you have. That's what I would think. I agree. I think it's a solid maybe to that question for me, too. And for me, I'm actually really glad that we have it in the collection. I'm grateful to have it because... If you're a real big Burgundy nerd, like I am, like you just love Castles of Burgundy, I actually think, yeah, you should get it. It's like playing a weird fever dream version of Castles of Burgundy. It actually, like, it stresses me out in a weird way that makes me want to play it again because it's so familiar to a game that I love and a game that I think that I'm good at, but I can't quite make it click and the old strategies aren't working that in a weird way i actually it makes me want to play it again so i actually think if you're a diehard castles of burgundy fan and you haven't picked up tuscany yet i think you should i don't think it's an essential classic but it is an interesting experiment and it's an interesting example of a board game master doing a variation on a theme you know like uh like, like beethoven doing a variation on one of his symphonies i mean it really is like it, it's fun to watch a master experiment with the form and so if you're a serious board game hobbyist, I'd say it's a strong maybe. Uh, but only one of these two castles is going to stand the test of time. And I think we all agree that's Castles of Burgundy. 
And that is our discussion on Castles of Burgundy and Castles of Tuscany. Two great games from a great designer, but like Matt said, one of them is definitely going to be superior than the other. I want to thank everyone for listening today. Of course, we were so happy to see you all reach out to us, and we love getting to interact with you. Matt, if people want to reach out and to get in touch with us, how can they do that? Uh, you can find us on the gram. Look for us on Instagram at Dice Pirates. That's our main hangout, but you can also find us on uh, Twitter and Instagram. But check us out on uh, social media. Uh, we post all throughout the week with updates on what we're playing, uh, mini reviews on games. We post all kinds of uh, crazy nonsense to the Instagram story, and we love to talk back. So if you message us, comment, we will interact with you in real life, and it won't even be nice. We hope to hear back from you. I want to thank Max again for being on the podcast. It was fantastic having you here. And next episode, we're going to go ahead and delve back into some more great solo games here on The Dice Pirates. See ya. See ya.